if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Hello and welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? The podcast where... I, Neil White, along with my brother David White, travel through time. Not literally, of course, just on the podcast. David, you ready to go for some time travel? I'm always up for a little time travel, Neil. Still National Women's History Month here in Canada. If you're interested in that, encourage you to check out episode number 13 of the podcast. It's a great episode and a great story about women's history in Canada. But this week is a new week, so we'll do a new podcast. David, are you ready to go with the question I ask you every week? Refresh my memory. What question is this? Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the 19th of February, 1868, and two Brazilian ironclads, swept by the fire of dozens of Paraguayan artillery pieces, are charging through the night leading a daring attempt to pass gun batteries and the three chains stretched across the Paraguay River in order to seize the famous and strategically vital fortress of Humeta. Wow, sounds exciting. A lot to unpack there, David. We're talking about the Paraguayan River, so we know this is in South America, and it's 1868. Why are the Brazilians attacking up the Paraguayan River into Paraguay in 1868. Well, Neil, it's a bit of a long story. Well, we got some time here. So it begins in Uruguay, all the way back in the 1840s. Now, Uruguay is a small South American country, and at this time, it's only relatively recently that it has become an independent country all of its own. And its government is unsettled, and the unfortunate result of that is a violent civil war between various factions, all of whom want to run the country. Of Uruguay. So how does Brazil come into this? Well, as you might imagine, a lot of the countries that have commercial interests in the area around Uruguay are very interested in the outcome of this long-running civil war that drags on for a long period of time. At various times, a large number of outside countries will support various factions, the British, the French, the Argentines. But eventually, the two most notable countries supporting factions in this Uruguayan civil war are Brazil and Paraguay. Okay, and these are going to be the two countries involved in our nighttime raid in 1868. How does the Uruguayan Civil War shake out, David? Well, eventually, the Brazilian-backed forces do gain control of the entire country and bring the Civil War to an official end. But tragically, this won't really be a part of our story, but tragically, the underlying conflict will remain and Uruguay will be torn by violence for decades more. But from our perspective, when the Brazilian-backed faction seizes control, it instigates a new conflict, because Paraguay, who have been backing the opposing side in this war, are very unhappy. 
Nobody likes to be a loser, that's for sure. What does Paraguay do? Well, Paraguay begins on the 12th of October, 1864, by declaring war on Brazil and launching an offensive into Brazilian territory. So this civil war in Uruguay has now spawned a whole new war between Paraguay and Brazil. Exactly. And how does the invasion go for Paraguay? Well, initially, the Paraguayans are actually winning victories, but they run into an element that's going to be a factor again and again throughout this war, logistics. Their border with Brazil is relatively small, and it's all in very unsettled regions at this time, areas that don't have a lot of people. So even though Paraguay is pushing forward, they're not threatening anything that's particularly critical to Brazil, and they can't move their armies deep enough to really have a real hope of ending the war. Okay, I see. So the Paraguayans are winning victories, but because they're in remote areas, uh, they're not very significant victories. Exactly. Do they have a plan to change this, to start winning some real victories? Well, the next year, in March 23rd, 1865, Paraguay decides if their border with Brazil doesn't offer good enough terrain for the assault that they want to launch, they just need to pick a different approach, a different way through. So they decide they're going to attack through Argentine territory to reach Brazil. Sounds like the old Maginot Line strategy, David. If the defenses are all too strong in one place, go around through another country. It's a very good analogy, Neil. It breaks down in several ways. An obvious one is that the Brazilian defenses aren't defenses that they built. They're natural terrain that's just difficult to cross for an army. But a more immediately significant reason why this analogy breaks down is that Argentina is not Belgium. Belgium was much smaller than Germany. Both Argentina and Brazil are larger than Paraguay. So Paraguay has now picked a fight with two bigger dogs. Indeed. At this point, the Brazilians, the Argentines, and the Uruguayan government, still allied to Brazil, form a force they call the Triple Alliance. The Triple Alliance is a great name for a military force. Sounds like something straight out of a movie. And indeed, this war becomes known in South American historiography as the War of the Triple Alliance. So now, Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, united, start fighting back and engaging the Paraguayans. And as they bring up larger forces, they're able to start winning victories of their own. But they run into the same problem that the... Paraguayans already have. Logistics. Exactly. It's difficult for the Paraguayans to march all the way to Brazil from this rough territory, but it's just as difficult for the Brazilians or the Argentines to march all the way to Paraguay. So in the same treaty that formed the Triple Alliance, the Brazilians and Argentines actually include a specific clause in the treaty that together, instead of trying to march by land towards Paraguay, which isn't working, they're going to strike down the Paraguayan River, which will let them use 
riverine logistics, let them use boats to carry their armies and supplies all the way into Paraguay. There's just one problem. The Paraguayans knew that the best route to invade Paraguay was always along this river, and they've built, over many years at great expense, a massive fortress specifically designed to prevent any possible invading fleet from getting down in the fortress of Humeta. So the Brazilians, the Argentines, and the Uruguayans are going to try and attack down the river, but they have to get past this massive impregnable fortress that the Paraguayans have built for exactly this reason. And just to add a little interest to the adventure, the Argentines insist in the treaty one of their conditions for allying with the Brazilians is that at the end of the war, whatever else happens, the fortress of Umeta, which, as well as being a massive fortress to prevent them from invading, is also the best customs checkpoint that the Paraguayans could possibly have along this river system that the Argentines use for ordinary commerce, the fortress of Umeta must be razed to the ground. So it's not just enough to go around this fortress. They have to defeat this undefeatable fortress. Exactly. All right, David, I feel like this is setting up a classic clash between a rock and a hard place. Indeed. And the Brazilian and Argentine armies in early 1865 begin their advance down the banks of the Paraguayan River heading towards the fortress of Humeta. And on June 11th, 1865, Paraguay's small fleet, recognizing that if they're trapped in the fortress, they won't be very effective, choose to sortie out from Humeta and attack the larger Brazilian river fleet in hopes of launching a decisive blow that will stop this invasion in its tracks. How does this go, the smaller Paraguayan navy attacking against the larger Brazilian force? Well, at the start, there's a brief moment of hope. The Paraguayans are sorting out, and on their river steamers, they're carrying troops, infantry from the fortress, with the hopes of capturing some of the Brazilian ships, because their force is smaller now, but if they capture enough ships, they could change that. And as they first steam down the river, they see that a large that the Brazilian ships are fairly scattered, and they think that maybe they'll be able to cut out one or two. But their commander is ambitious. He tries to bypass most of the Brazilian fleet in hopes of catching a large number of them scattered instead of just picking off one or two slowly. But the Brazilians are quicker than he had hoped. Uh, when they see what he's doing, the portion of the fleet that's farther down the river rallies and charges straight into the middle of the Paraguayan ships and uses its greater firepower to destroy the sortie. All right, so the Paraguayans have lost one battle, but they still have their huge fortress, don't they? That's what they've been counting on, and they've still got it. But... The Brazilians and the Argentines are getting closer by the day, settling in, 
bringing in more and bigger guns. And the Paraguayans just don't want to be trapped in the fortress because they don't know that the treaty requires that the fortress be taken and destroyed. For all they know, the Brazilians and the Argentines have always been planning to try and bypass this. So once again, this time their fleet is gone, but the Paraguayans decide on another sortie, this time with their army, striking at the heart of the Brazilian-Argentine force, its infantry. Is this also a mismatch for the Paraguayans, David? Are they outnumbered here? They're outnumbered, but their military, by the standards of South America of the 1860s, the Paraguayan military is extraordinarily well-trained and equipped. And they've defeated, by this point in the war, while they were on the offensive in Brazil and Argentina, they have occasionally defeated armies that did outnumber them. So they've got the urgency. They're willing to go out and fight. Everybody loves an underdog. How does it go for the Paraguayans? Well, in May of 1866... There's the Battle of Tuyuti. It's the largest battle in Latin American history. Wow. Initially, it's the largest battle in Latin American history. Initially, the Brazilian forces, the forward lines, start to be overrun. But the troops behind them rally and hold. And the Paraguayan attack eventually simply can't push its way through the powerful defenses that the greater number of Brazilians and Argentines have put together. And eventually, the Paraguayan army, after suffering horrific casualties, is forced to retreat off the field and back into their fortress. Okay, so the Paraguayans have now tried twice to break out of the fortress, but they're still trapped in there. And the Brazilians and the Argentines are determined to raise this fortress to the ground. So now the Brazilians and the Argentines, the Triple Alliance, go on the offensive themselves. They go in the opposite order to the Paraguayans. Their first attack is made with the infantry. And at the at a section of the outlying defenses of the fortress known as Curupeti, in September 1866, the Brazilians and the Argentines suffer a catastrophic defeat. One of the ugly examples of how a smaller force, well entrenched with modern rifles in strong field entrenchments, can beat off even a very determined attacker. So despite having larger forces and being determined, the Triple Alliance gets defeated because of the fortress essentially because of the defenses that the Paraguayans have had time to build up. Is there another strategy for the Triple Alliance to try and find a way to break through these defenses? Well, if manpower isn't going to be enough, it's time for the Triple Alliance to turn to the most advanced weaponry the world has in existence in 1868. And that is? Well, we're talking American Civil War era the Brazilians actually bring up some balloons to get observation over the fortress, a very early use of aircraft in warfare. But more importantly, they bring up ironclads. These are some of the first ships, boats really, to have strong 
iron coverings over their hull to defend them from cannon fire. Only a few examples in European navies and in America during the American Civil War were earlier. So describe these ironclads, David. What are they? They're boats with iron, obviously, from the name, but how do they work? Well, they're actually quite simple. These are very early in the development of ironclads. So you're essentially looking at a ship, simple hull, steam engines, new at the time. The hull is actually made of wood framing covered with iron plates. And then on the top deck, you're going to have a few large and powerful guns, maybe in a turret. Most of the time, they haven't even gotten to turret technology at this point. Okay, so the Brazilians and the Argentines, the Triple Alliance, have these ironclads on the river. So they're going to attack the fortress from the riverside? Exactly. Push past it, cut it off so that it can't be resupplied, bombard it from the river. There's a lot of things that, in theory, a powerful enough navy could do. But, of course, the fortress of Umeta has always been built to prevent ships from just passing down the river, and its designers thought a little bit about how to stop boats from moving up and down. Right. The whole point of this fortress is to protect the river, which is a key supply route through the area, right? Exactly. So what sorts of river defenses do they have? Well, they're divided into two main types. The first is guns. They've got guns on the riverbank, and they can fire across the river easily to sink any ship that tries to pass. The second, perhaps even the more important, are chains. They've stretched chains all across the river, three of them, with the intention that any ship that tries to get by them will get tangled up and caught, and then the guns will easily be able to sink it, and even if the guns fail, the ship will just be stuck. Pretty simple but effective. Well, we'll see how effective it is. Okay, so do the Brazilians try to get their ironclads down the river? They do. And on the first attempt, they're easily able to bypass the outlying gun batteries and make it all the way to the chain. But the chains foil them, and they actually manage to retreat to a specific bend in the river that isn't covered by the Paraguayan guns, but they're past the first set of Paraguayan gun batteries, and they don't want to run back past them again for fear that they'll suffer more damage now that the Paraguayans are alert than they did passing them by surprise the first time. So these ironclads, the most advanced technology of the time, are now stuck between the gun batteries and the chains. They are. And the Brazilians, for a brief period, are very worried that it's the ironclads that are going to be starved out, not the fortress. Yeah, that would be bad for them since those are their advanced technology. What happens next? The Brazilians actually build a railroad route across a swamp specifically so that they can resupply their ironclads in the narrow gap that the ironclads are between the Paraguayan gun batteries that the ironclads are currently sheltering in. So the immediate supply issue is solved. 
and eventually the gun batteries that had cut off the uh, ironclads are now cut off themselves and they fall but the essential problem is still there the fortress and the chains still have to be passed right it seems like an insurmountable problem for the triple alliance it's certainly a long period of time where these ironclads are trapped and later they're not trapped but they're still stuck in front of the fortress but as time goes by watching the chain some of the younger officers on the brazilian squadron get the idea that they actually can push past it because they think that the chain is gone the chain is gone why would the chain be gone this is as we were saying really the most important piece of defense for the paraguayans obviously they wouldn't get rid of it so how did it disappear well we know what happened as historians the chains were stretched across the river but it was too long a distance when it would, when the chains were being built to secure them properly with tension alone to just stretch them across the river so they had to be supported with floats now these floats were supposed to be massive solid pieces of wood that would be able to stand up to a very significant targeted bombardment and still hold together and still keep up the chain but somehow and we don't know for sure how perhaps some kind of error by the engineers designing it or maybe more likely contractors building the design tried to cheap out the floats were hollow and when the brazilian bombardment started falling untargeted around them they punctured these hollow floats and as the water flooded in they sank and with them the chain well anyone who's had a shoddy renovations done on their home will know the problem of cheap contractors so the paraguayans now have a hole in their defense the chains are gone but have the brazilians realized this they're not sure that is the essential problem for the brazilians for an extended period of time they're looking at the chains they think the first chain might have sunk they can't see the second or the third chain as clearly because to do that they'd have to go past the first chain and its gun batteries and they don't want to try to do that without trying to break all three or else the paraguayans might realize what's happened so maybe all three had this problem and sank maybe they didn't and for the brazilian admirals it's a huge risk these new expensive cutting edge ships are you willing to risk them to try and force your way past this chain these two chains that may or may not be ready to stop you what did they decide to do so admiral ignacio the admiral of the brazilian fleet actually refuses to attempt it he thinks it's too dangerous but he ends up in conflict with the infantry commander on the scene whose men are suffering casualties outside the trench lines of the fortress and who's not happy with the idea of the ships not trying to force it and eventually 
he falls sick. And when he does, he leaves his son-in-law in charge, Admiral de Carvalho. And de Carvalho is a younger man, and maybe a bolder one. But he decides that he is going to take this fleet and try and pass Umeta. So we have a new, young Brazilian commander ready to take it on, ready to take the charge down the river, not knowing whether or not the defenses are still there. Does this bring us, David, to the 19th of February, 1868, and this daring nighttime attack? It does indeed. And the ironclads charge through the night, shells bouncing off their powerful armor. What would that be like, David, to have these boats covered in iron with shells literally bouncing off them? It would be terrifying because you never know for sure that this is going to hold on, that these defenses aren't going to fail. And in point of fact, we know that some of the ironclads on this nighttime charge actually had the timber framing that held the iron plates together start to crack under the bombardment and throw large wooden splinters into the crew compartments, injuring some of the crew. And they just had to carry on. Once you're committed to a charge like that, the only thing you could do is keep going. So they charge down the river. How does it go, David? Are the chains, in fact, gone? They pass the first chain. They pass where the second chain should be. They pass the third chain. All three chains are gone. They charge through all the storm of shellfire that the Paraguayan batteries can put up. And once they're past the fortress, they stop. And now, for the first time, the fortress of Umeta is fully surrounded. So now that the Triple Alliance has the fortress surrounded... They can settle in for a more traditional siege. They can try and starve them out. That can't be good for the Paraguayans. It's not, and the Paraguayans know it's not. So on the 2nd of March, 1868, the Paraguayans try their own desperate counterattack, loading as many infantry as they can scrape together into canoes. They try and slip through the night to the ironclads, the Brazilian ironclads, with the plan of climbing up them and then seizing them, boarding them and seizing them in order to change the entire state of the siege. This is really the opposite of the Brazilians' plan, where the Brazilians took these big, powerful ironclads and charged down the river. The Paraguayans are doing the opposite, sneaking in little tiny canoes and trying to sneak up to the ironclads. It is. And the result, unfortunately for the Paraguayans, is also the opposite of the Brazilians' plan. Uh-oh. Initially, there's a dramatic success. Some of the canoes actually reach the ironclads, and they start climbing onto the decks. But as the Brazilians realize what's happening, they seal shut the crew compartments and hold them against the borders. And... Some of the ironclads, which haven't been reached by canoes successfully, start firing shrapnel from their guns deliberately, sweeping the decks of their own ironclads to drive the Paraguayans off them. What a crazy move, David. They're actually 
locking their own guys in the bottom of the boat and then shooting at their own boats to destroy the Paraguayans trapped on the deck. When you're in a desperate situation, a desperate fight, you do what you can, even when it's crazy. But this crazy move works out for the Brazilians? It works out. The Paraguayan borders are driven off. The Brazilians hold on to their ironclads. And on the 25th of July, 1868, after either two or three years of siege, depending on when you count the start of the assault on the fortress, the fortress of Umeta finally falls. The undefeatable fortress turned out to be defeatable after all. Indeed. It'll be another two years before Paraguay finally surrenders. Some of the bloodiest per capita fighting in modern history, in any recorded history, will take place. But in the end, with Humeta fallen and no natural obstacles between Paraguay and the larger Brazilian and Argentine armies, the result of the war is foreordained. Wow, what a story, David. Thanks for telling us. Always happy, Neil. All right, as we always do at the end of these podcasts, I have a fun little quiz for you. Do you want to play along? I do indeed. Since Halloween is coming up, I thought we'd do a Halloween history quiz here, David. So we've got some spooky questions for you. Spooky. Dracula was based on the real-life Vlad the Impaler, which is a gruesome nickname. Uh, His illegitimate half-brother had a bit of a nicer nickname. He was known as Vlad the what? Transylvania in the brutal wars between the Ottomans and the Austrians. What kind of a nice nickname could a guy get? Perhaps the kind? It wasn't quite that good. It was Vlad the monk. I'm guessing he was a monk. One would imagine. All right, we all know that in Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein is the name of the doctor, not the monster. What was the doctor's first name? Victor? You're right. Victor Frankenstein is the name of the doctor who creates the monster. The zombie myth comes from which colonial slave country? Ah, I always associate it with the Vudun religion. So I'm not entirely sure which of the islands of the West Indies it would come from, but I'm going to guess Haiti as being one of them. You are correct. It was Haiti where slaves believed that zombies were undead slaves condemned to skulk the plantations for all eternity. And you're right that it did get wrapped into the voodoo religion and, and some of that culture and eventually came to... America through the movies. All right, another Halloween question for you. In the movie, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. What time does Lucy wake up to go get Linus from the pumpkin patch? I have no idea. It's quite early in the morning, 4 a.m. Lucy gets her little brother from the pumpkin patch. Spoiler alert, without having seen The Great Pumpkin. All right, and one last question for you, David. 
in colonial Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693, more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft. How many were executed? How many people were executed for practicing witchcraft in colonial Massachusetts? Yeah, these are the famous Salem witch trials. Salem witch trials. Whew. I'm going to guess that the number was quite a bit lower than the number of people accused. Perhaps 20? You're dead on, David. 20 people ended up being executed in those witch trials. Well, thanks for playing along. Wow, that last one was a pure guess. (laughs) Good job. And thanks to the audience for playing along as well. If you want to catch up with us on social media, our handle is at WhenArtThou on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you could email us Oh brother, when art thou at outlook.com or visit our website, obrother.ca. Listen to the podcast wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Thanks for joining me here today, David. I always enjoy this, Neil. And thanks for listening. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. <laughs>